This is another iRaw podcast. And what I really enjoyed the last three chapters of the book where I talk much more about how modern day dogs in science are very much companions to science. You know, they're dogs that fit into family environments and that are cared for, catered for, and are more like volunteers than they are, you know, research, the rest of the, unfortunately, the rest of the research animals. Welcome to the Animal Turn podcast. So this is some bonus content for you while we're in between seasons. I'm currently busy finishing up my PhD and I'm just taking a spot of time to focus on that at the moment. But you have some bonus episodes and content to look forward to while I do that and brainstorm a little bit about what the next season could be on. So in this bonus episode, I'm going to be speaking to Jules Howard. Jules Howard is a UK-based zoological correspondent, science writer, and broadcaster who writes for The Guardian, BBC Wildlife, and Science Focus. His latest book, which we're going to be speaking about today quite a bit, is Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans, and it came out in November 2022. Jules has appeared regularly on TV and radio, including Good Morning Britain, BBC Newsround, BBC Breakfast, and BBC Radio 4. Jules is also an author of several other books, including Sex on Earth and Death on Earth. It was so much fun to speak to Jules about his book. And while this is a book review, I still wanted to kind of center the conversation a little bit on a concept. So we focused the conversation around the idea of wonder. And I think that it's really a beautiful concept. In many ways, I think that this idea of wonder and awe will take us out of several of the the issues that we face in the world today. But we focus on wonder. What does it mean to wonder about how we know things? And how do different animals help us wonder about things? And how are dogs wonderful? So we do a whole lot of talking about wonder. Uh, We have a lot of fun throughout the episode. I'm still finding my feet a little bit with how to do and think about book reviews. So if you've got any thoughts or ideas, please feel free to let me know. And just before we jump into the interview as well, I just want to say a quick thank you to the longtime sponsor of the podcast, Animals in Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple. Thank you for sponsoring this podcast. If you are interested in sponsoring this podcast or a particular episode or season for the podcast, feel free to reach out to me at info at theanimalturnpodcast.com. All right, but I think that's enough for now. I hope you enjoy listening. Hey, Jules, welcome to the Animal Time Podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to talk to you, which I say to every guest at the beginning of every episode, but I really do mean it. I enjoy these conversations and I've just finished reading your book and it was amazing. So Wonder Dog just came out, right? It's, it's hot off the press. When when did it come out? It's It's been out, I think, about two and a half uh, months. So yeah, I, I, just, that's, I think that still classes as you know, hot off the press. But yeah, so, and it came out in the UK, yeah, last last May. So it's been, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed it and thanks ever so much for reading it. Yeah, I mean, I love I love dogs and dogs come up all the time. And I think, you know, reading about dogs is always fun. Um, but you do it in a really kind of fascinating and interesting way where you're kind of charting. It's It's not so much about dogs purely, but more about kind of how a variety of scientists have historically come upon dogs and come to know them and found out really interesting things about 
Dogs and the World. So it's a great, great read. But before we go into that, and we're not we're going to be talking about your book, but I was hoping today that we would speak a little bit about the concept of wonder, because I think that threaded throughout the book is kind of the activity of wonder, like wondering what's happening on, but also wonder and awe at what's being found. So I'd really like if we could talk about, about that today. But before we do, I even try to look, I was looking you up, I was on your website, and you are very modest with your about page. There's like five sentences. So I tried to do my due diligence. And I know that you're a prolific writer and you're a biologist. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and how you came to do what you do? So I was always really interested in animals and academically was very interested in evolution and animal behavior. And from that, I mean, I don't know how this differs to your experience in the US, but, you know, in the UK, I kind of came out of university kind of like, oh, my God, I, I need to work with I want to work with animals. And, and you know, the, the options were really, really kind of limited. And I didn't have it in me like you to go you know through the PhD, you know, the PhD kind of life. I don't think that was quite it just didn't really suit me, I think, at the time. And basically, I'm a massive zoology generalist. And I think it was really scary to sort of, you know, to, to, to narrow down. But yeah, and then from that, I basically eventually realised that I got a lot of thrill from talking about animals and a lot of thrill from writing about animals. And it was about, after various jobs with frogs, actually, and, and wildlife charities and bird charities, I eventually, yeah, realised that I just absolutely loved writing and I loved it's in in a funny sort of way. I, I don't know if this is true or not, but to me, writing a book is like doing a miniature PhD. Do you know what I mean? You're really throwing yourself into this thing and you're asking questions and really excited to try and answer those questions. And I guess unlike a PhD, you finish a book and you're kind of like, what's what's next? Whereas I assume, I don't know, for you, you're already thinking what's coming on next or like... Yeah, it's a PhD. Yeah, I mean, I really am. I'm, I'm hoping to turn my PhD into a book, but we'll see. Because I think when you get to the end of the PhD, you're also like, oh, yes, what's next? Like five years... I mean, I love I love what I do and, and I'm very fortunate to be kind of focused on animals. But I think it's also kind of remarkable and interesting. I think a lot of people find themselves doing academia or jumping into masters or PhDs when they're not really, that's not really their jam. I love kind of this uh, space and what I'm doing. And I think I actually wish more and more people would be like you and say, hey, that's not my jam. I'm going to go out into the world and figure out what I enjoy. Um, but what is... And I know this is going to seem like a strange question coming from a, an animal studies-based podcast, but there's a lot of words flying around. What is zoo, zoology exactly? When we're talking about zoology, what is this evolutionary biology or what, 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 is, what does it mean when you say you studied zoology? So, you know, zoology, obviously the science of animal life. And I think, you know, where you go, where you section it off, I suppose, nowadays, that, that, that would include, you know, genetics, animal behavior, taxonomy. You know, there's some quite sort of broad topics. And also it obviously goes quite often into ecology as well. So how animals interact with their environments and influence their environments. So it's quite a broad church, I guess you would say. And I think, well, for me, I, I've kind of liked dipping into different aspects of it. And I think sometimes, you know, going back to the book thing, that's that's what you you do. And in fact, with, with children's books, what often happens, I don't know if this is universal, but for me, like a publisher might say, okay, we need a book on taxonomy or something like that. And my knowledge of taxonomy has faded away over the years. And you can get sort of re-involved in a project like that and just be, you know, re 
sort of re-inspired I suppose by it so yet yeah, definitely a, definitely a broad a broad topic but in my experience I'd, again I'd be interested to know how this compares with the US when I was studying zoology and it was like this is you know I mentioned this was like 20 years ago most people were on that course to do with animal behavior so that seemed to be the big thing that most people kind of were, were attached to is the idea of why animals you know behave the way they do what what what's it like to be an animal what are they thinking how intelligent are they how how easy is it is is how easy is it for us to compare the human experience with the animal experience? So that was definitely the motivating question. And when you were when you were at university with these types of questions, primarily uh, at the university in like lab settings and in classrooms, or did you also go out into the field and observe kind of in an ecological in an ecological sense as well? Or ethological, sorry, wrong. wrong Yeah, I mean, we you would think we would, you would absolutely think we would, and I would must say it didn't didn't really happen for us. I think in a in a, I mean, we did have some field trips in the UK. I think we had. I think this problem still exists. People who who had maybe like I want to say family money, but that sounds a bit derogatory. But I mean, people who could afford it would go off. You know spend the summer you know in the Caribbean studying turtles and things like that and there was a bit of a, a division I suppose depending on how much kind of basically how much money people had which is really sad and I think and this is we both know this is still the case now but you know it, mass, it massively limits the diversity of people who survive zoology you know and I think that in in the UK we still have quite a problem with it, it you know zoology is it's still a kind of middle class, you know, sort of zone, a white zone. So that's that's still a problem, I, I think, today. So yeah, we didn't we didn't like do much. Weirdly, what we did do, which has changed now, I was speaking to a zoology a professor of zoology recently, and we did a lot of dissection. And and I would say out of two hundred of us, only about two or three people would you know would say I can't do this or I don't I don't feel able to do this. And then, you know, for, for that was, what, 20, more than, blimey, oh my gosh, that was 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn, I've just added five years those, on. <laughs> those realisations are the best. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think that's very, very interesting in terms of our relationship with animals is that that was kind of the norm. And, and funny enough, I was thinking about it today, you know, in preparation for our talking. And, I mean, I, I like to think that saved the universities a lot of money by, you know, modifying the syllabus and not relying so much on, on live and obviously dead animals but you know I don't want to talk about some of the stories but there was some actually looking back some really kind of disgusting and horrific aspects to that you know very yeah not not good but again at the time you know you realize how culture changes really at the time we kind of thought that was the that was what you had to do you know yeah and I mean it is it is heartening at least to see and this is also a theme throughout your book that things can change of course, universities are still doing these kinds of experiments and tests today, and I think students still find their ability to say something is, you've paid a lot of money to be at university, and your ability to say something, you're not too sure what's appropriate. It's a new space. So yeah, it's universities, and, and I think what goes on in labs are often like these big black boxes, which is, at least to me, so I don't I don't go into labs. I'm in the social sciences side of things, so my access to a lab is actually extremely limited, which is interesting. You mentioned their uh, children's books. So I know that you write a whole host of children's books. And this is, I think, quite remarkable. And you're clearly a science communicator and someone who's interested in education. You've got all of these like VR education experiences and things you're working on. What got you into kind of this this desire to communicate stories about animals and 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 about 
nature and science, I think, generally. I would say one of the big things for me, it's funny we talk about university. I haven't talked about university for absolutely ages, but one of the things I really was quite shocked by was how little, and again, this is definitely a different a difference between the UK and and obviously elsewhere, particularly North America, but basically went through university and realised actually, goodness me, evolution, you know, Darwin's, you know, big, big idea, it really did explain everything in the topic. So by the end of that, you know, th- that four years, you know, it was kind of obvious, really, you could link all of these different threads, the threads I mentioned before, taxonomy, behaviour, diversity, e- ecology, you could link these together in this really nice fr- evolutionary framework. And I think I came out of, I came out of that kind of like, wow, I should have known that before I went in. And my granddad was a vicar. And I wonder whether or not there was some sort of thing going on there. You know, maybe they didn't really want me to know. And I went to university and blew my mind. But I I really, really came out wanting to definitely not, not convince people about evolution, but I I definitely wanted to go out and sort of get across that magical feeling of kind of, oh my gosh, this is, everything's interrelated and fits within this really, really beautiful framework. And I think I wanted to make sure I could share that with other people, essentially people who were like me before I went to university. So that was definitely a big, a really big factor. And then the, the kind of, now I realise, I think when I was about, I used to draw comics when I was really, really young and a, a bit of me still doing that now and just coming up with kind of, slightly crazy ideas and then fitting animals you know within that if that makes sense so I I definitely love the idea of doing something creative and seeing what it opens up and then you know what it's like with projects sometimes you start on something and it goes wrong or something's not happening right and you have to try something else and then you discover something even you know even more even more interesting so I think you know I think for me that's where I get a lot of the pleasure is is saying okay Here's some science. Here's the science of animals. Let's express it in a new way and see how audiences respond to that. And I would say nearly always they don't respond as well as I hope. Oh, but, no, you know, that's no, kind like, of a, no, it's, it's really? the joy of it, you know. <laughs> but that's kind of the joy of it in some ways is like seeing, you know, what works and what doesn't. It's really it's a lovely feeling. Well, I, I think you've done some wonderful work. And as someone who's busy writing at the moment now, I know that it can be exceedingly difficult to say ideas simply. And and I think that it's an art that's underappreciated because particularly in kind of academia, we because things are so complex, it, you know, we sometimes get a bit too verbose and, and, and your writing certainly kind of makes things, crystallizes things and you say it quite clearly. And you were speaking somewhat there, I think, about this idea of wonder, that university kind of brought you to the wonder of evolution. And it is like it is quite remarkable when you just kind of realize what life does, right? Like that the same particles that make me up have been around for forever, right? Like there's something just absolutely astronomical and, and awe-inspiring about the ideas of how we've changed and how life has changed on the planet. So so let's get into this idea of, of wonder a bit and, and into the book. How, firstly, let's let's just maybe give a bit of a synopsis of the book. What was your goal with, with Wonder Dog and what were you hoping to kind of communicate and get across? Um, it's, it's not a book about the science of dog 
minds, although that is a key part of it, because so many brilliant scientists, there's some absolutely amazing dog writers out there who, who you know, have eloquently expressed all sorts of evolutionary ideas about what it's like to be a dog, particularly Alexandra Horowitz, who I just think is just such oh, a she's great amazing. writer. She's amazing. Honestly, when I saw her blurb on your book, I was like, yeah, okay, he's, he's good. I'm going to have him on the pod. I'm going to have him on the podcast because Alexander Horowitz is just like. She's amazing, and I, I agree with you. I don't know why I have it, like, anyway. Well, you um, can imagine what I was like when I was like, oh, my God, I fell off my chair. I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah, she is really a rock star in the world of yeah, dogs. Totally, so, totally. Um, yeah, totally, totally. Amazing. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to do, really, is talk about the history of animal cognition, how we went, how over the last 150 years it's changed, and dogs, I thought, would be a nice way to... They would be great characters to tell that story. And obviously, starting on it, you know, I was like, actually, no, these dogs really are characters, you know? So this succession of what I would call wonder dogs, so individual dogs that inspired questions in the scientists with whom they cohabit, that really did kind of change our appreciation of what it's like to be a dog, what it's like to be a, you know, a cat, a human, a chimpanzee. You know, so it was a way, the dogs, if you like, were their, were their way in to understanding more about animal minds. So essentially, I guess between us, and again, I don't think I've ever said this out loud before, but I, I guess I was looking at a big dog market of people. Lots of people, you know, really do connect with their dogs and their cats. And how do you, how do you develop their understanding of their dogs and cats? And I wanted to add sort of evolutionary you know, cognitive science into into the pet owner's lexicon, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I think we all, many of us relate to dogs in our daily lives and can can kind of empathize with some of the, the stories and the characters you unpack. And I think the idea that being around animals can inspire certain questions and can inspire certain kind of reflections on what it is you're finding and what it is you're doing is quite remarkable. So you kind of start the book with Darwin, who we, we've spoken a bit about now, but you kind of start with how these evolutionary ideas, you know, or just ideas of evolution kind of began to some extent. And then you you kind of, every chapter shows how a particular set of research or ideas related to dogs has a story. And I think it's a story that involves particular dogs, but it's a story that involves particular scientists as well, asking quite particular questions. And I think what the chapters do quite well is you you step on, like you're building on this kind of idea, showing how, I guess, right in the beginning, so behaviorism was kind of a really big thing right in the beginning. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what what is what was behaviorism and how did we originally think about dogs as, as beings and the science around that? Yeah, I mean, you can think of the last 150 years as, as a kind of war between scientists that thought it was all about nurture rather than nature. And, you know, the other half of these zoologists and, and animal scientists saying it's about nature, you know, so it's in our DNA in, inevitably. And for the first, well, Darwin was very much of a, of a kind of like, OK, humans are mammals. We share ancestors with dogs. Therefore, we differ in our cognitive abilities only by degree. And then from that, you get a much more laboratory based science through Ivan Pavlov. Basically, you know, through the, you know, the famous bell, although there wasn't a bell, but anyway, we won't go into that, you know, the bell ringing and dogs salivating and this idea that essentially the body could react to its external environment, you know, without the brain even needing to be engaged. So in other words, every behavior that animals, including humans, give off 
is based on a you know positive or negative experience in our past if that makes sense so so that that idea was obviously started with pavlov and it's what is what what i still find incredibly interesting is that you know in the uk this sort of science after darwin died we had quite a strong because obviously there was a boom in dog populations in the UK, particularly in London, and we had dogs' homes, the first dog homes. We had rabies on the streets, so we had the removal of street dogs. Because of this close attachment that a lot of you know polite society had with dogs in the UK, we were you know there was a big war between vivisectionists and anti-vivisectionists, and it was such a contentious issue in the end that you know we stepped away from that kind of science. So uh, Russia became a big seat of influence. Some of those ideas spread over from to the US and, you know, the early sort of psychological psych- psychology circles, I guess you could say. So, you know, Skinner was part of that. B.F. Skinner, who was the kind of radical behaviorist, I guess you could say. So essentially, you know, that's what it came down to. The mind was a blind, sl- the, the, the mind was a blank slate and experiences, you know, filled in that space and influenced all behaviours that we see. There was literally no room for ner- uh, for nature at all. And then what's kind of interesting in the kind of 1950s is when we start getting a better understanding of genetics. And in fact, some really amazing, like 10-year studies involving, you know, breeding dogs, different strains of dogs and looking at their behaviours. What we realised, of course, is, my goodness me, you know, dogs definitely, definitely are both nature and nurture so we see differences between breeds because of you know because of breeding not because of differences in their you know in the when they were in their puppy stage if that so to speak so so it's it's a kind of changing as i say if you imagine it on a graph it's like kind of nature and nurture they're they're both there now we realize that they're both interesting aspects of the science of animal minds but it was a, it took a long time to get here a lot of you know unfortunately butchered dogs you know particularly in pavlov's age you know were were you know it's really kind of harrowing to imagine it but you know it took a long time to get to this stage we're at now really yeah this was this was something i was hoping to talk to you about cuz it was quite clear to me that throughout the book you were trying to not speak about some of these violences and i think only recently i think are people looking at pavlov with more kind of scrutiny i mean Obviously, at the time, with the anti-vivisectionist movements, there was this kind of backlash. But recently, I think folks are looking at how many dogs. I think we've all got this idea that it was like Pavlov and one dog doing something. But he had many dogs that he was conducting experiments on. And many of these experiments were, as you say, quite, for the dogs involved, really quite violent and not not pleasant. But I did notice kind of throughout the book that you try to not speak about the violence. You actually say, I'm not going to get into these details. Did was there a particular reason why you didn't want to kind of spend time with that? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. So a lot of the the end notes obviously do include some of the the more of the you know the gory details, I suppose you could say. I was really, you know, when they say when you're writing a book, you have to sort of picture your picture your reader, and my reader in my head was actually my mother-in-law, <laughs> <laughs> who's always been a dog lover, and she's she's you know scientifically literate you know but definitely hasn't really considered the science of dog minds I guess and I know that with many people and we all know people like this and it may be you as you know as well Claudia but visibly I mean emotionally horrified and distraught about descriptions of some of this stuff 
So I was kind of wary of that, but I also wanted to include that it really did happen. You know, I, I, I name by name, you know, as you've read, like the Pavlov's dogs. And as you say, there was many of them because of that reason is kind of like, I don't think we should just forget about this or blur it out of history. You know, it's, it's really barbaric. And the, the kind of the, the thing that really eats away at me is more, is actually not just the number of dogs that were suffering but the fact that Pavlov especially was interested in long-term studies. So it was in his interest to keep a dog alive for as long as possible, you know, with with the various tubes and stuff attached to collect the digestive enzymes. Sorry, I just said digestive enzymes after sort of clacking and licking my mouth. Sorry, it's disgusting. <laughs> it's, <laughs> good, it's, it's good radio. It's good radio. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really tricky, tricky balance and and i'm i think i'm hoping i found you know the the way through it but you know i mean again spade the gruesome details but i don't think i included this in the um in the book but you know the 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 scientist that discovered homeostasis so as you know the 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 body system that regulates you know temperature he came to that by putting dogs in ovens and the dog's bark so much he removed their vocal cords and so he basically built a big oven in his in his cellar and you know this is just absolutely amazing that we're all being taught this i remember being taught about homeostasis and at no point does anyone say hmm i wonder how we discovered homeostasis well this is exactly this is exactly right i mean i i appreciate that again your your book was kind of about wonder and i think that we do have a lot of writing about this violence and i think we should have writing about this violence and it should be highlighted but i your, I understand that the intent of your book was to show how wonder and appreciation of how wonderful dogs are can elicit questions and understanding. And you kind of show over time how uh, an appreciation of play and, and of dogs' personalities is leading to actually more interesting questions than some of those uh, early behaviorists. But my my one concern, and I love the book, absolutely, was that you kind of get to this really end stage and it seems to me like you're suggesting that scientists are no longer doing these types of things to dogs, that we've had this kind of linear progression of behaviorists that are, um, and and that was my only, honestly, the only critique I have of an otherwise beautiful book was, was I got there and I was like, to someone who maybe doesn't read or know, they might think, okay, so no scientists are doing these types of awful things on dogs. And, and as of course we know, there are still many animals, dogs included, that that kind of experience these things. No, I think yeah, it's an absolutely fair enough point, and I, I, you know, that's been raised as well. I've, I've had um, another couple of people raise that, and in fact, in a later version of the book, I will be including some information about. In the UK, we still have four thousand operations on dogs each year, in the name of science, and that's actually gone up since Brexit. Obviously, we've dissociated, so lost our ties to EU regulation, European regulation. And, you know, that's gone up by 5% already. So, you know, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And it's definitely, yeah, that's the last thing I want to do is is to, you know, give the idea that, you know, that's it. Now we're done. No more dogs suffer. No more animals suffer, you know. So it's a totally fair point. Yeah, I definitely don't take that in a bad way. Okay. I just, I felt like I had to say it out loud. But, but I want to speak more now about kind of the dogs in your book. And you're absolutely right. The dogs are not included in kind of the writing of these stories. And I think what you do throughout your book is you name the dogs. You name several of Pavlov's dogs. You name all of these scientists' dogs. And you show how these dogs kind of raise these questions. 
And you get to the Brelanders. Is that how you say it? Brelanders? Mm, yeah, Brelands. And, and then thereafter, you kind of talk a bit about John Paul Scott and how this marked a really clear shift in kind of thinking about dogs. And they've done a lot of work about dogs. Could you tell us a little bit about them and some of their work? So, yeah, Scott and Fuller, these two scientists that worked through the 60s. And, you know, they were scientists, particularly Scott, was had seen, you know, they both seen two world wars and they were really, really of the persuasion that bad people aren't born bad. So, you know, criminals, they become criminals in many cases because of a tough childhood, for instance. And they saw in dogs a way to test that hypothesis and look at the impact of puppyhood, experiences in puppyhood, how that affects the adult dog. And essentially they had a bunch of different kennels and enclosures and they could see what would happen to dogs for instance if they had limited contact with humans as puppies and what would happen if they had loads of contact with humans as puppies and look at the adult dogs that they became and in fact now when we talk about dogs and I'm sure this is the same for for you guys but you know you go and see the vet with your puppy in the UK and they'll just keep reinforcing this idea you need to make sure this the puppy is socialized has as many experiences as possible and that will obviously inform the dog that the that the puppy is going to become. And it, that's a, as a direct result of that 1960s study that, as I said, went on for like 10 years. Um, and it's a great example of, you know, how ideas about humanity can be informed by science. And in fact, that the end result of that study, which is particularly lovely, is that, you know, after 10 years or so of, of doing these tests, these separate environments and seeing what happens to puppies and what adults they become, after all that time, it was obvious that, you know, a badly treated dog, a badly treated puppy or a dog that's been kept in, a say, a laboratory uh, setting away from, you know, people or human companions would end up as a dog with, you know, um, kind of, I guess we would call them mental health problems or uncertainty or aggressive, unpredictable. And because of that 10 year study that essentially gave more ammo to the anti-vivisectionist argument to get them to to you know limit or start to reduce hopefully the number of dogs used in those kind of studies so it links together a bunch of things really you know hard work clever methodology scientists who are human beings who want to solve human problems and dogs who are you know in that case are, you know willing subjects i guess you could say so yeah i mean i i find that fascinating and again i find it fascinating i spoke to lots of my dog cognition and veterinary friends and said you know do you know this this whole idea about the socialization socialization period do you know where we got that information from and everyone's like i never really thought of that so again you know it's it's nice to remind people of that work and in fact there was it's been said a couple of times that every important american geneticist uh, that has done work in the last 50 years came through that facility so visited that facility in the 60s to learn about those experiments and see them being done so again, like these these sort of scientists, they seem like really nice guys as well, you know, and to actually, you know, write them down as human beings in a book. It's the first time I've ever written anything like that. And I just think it's really, really, really nice. So yeah, there are human characters as well as the dog characters that we owe a debt to. And I mean, they, they changed then, like you said. So there are still, as we've said, you know, dogs that are undergoing certain experimentations, but there is increasingly kind of these setups and, and Alexander Horowitz, who we mentioned is, is a key example here of finding joy at looking at dogs in dog spaces and figuring out what dogs want to do and how they want to do it. So you spend quite a bit of time talking about play and how play 
and and dogs have had the capacity and options to socialize and enjoy play and how much that changes their cognition. Now, play seems like an obvious thing. It just feels like play is, you see it, you know it when you see it, you're like they're playing. But it turns out that that hasn't been the case in the world of science. Play, sometimes the, the things we think are the simplest, like play and happiness become the most controversial and difficult to talk about. So what is play? What are people wondering and thinking about play? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that expresses itself when it tends to be mammals, but some, you know, birds, jackdaws, for instance, you know, can definitely be observed playing. It comes out when animals seem to be relaxed, which is I find always find really nice and interesting. It's like the ultimate sign of a, of a non-stressed animal, a healthy animal, is when they exhibit play. And you're right. I don't think if we were to discover, I don't know, you know, two light years away, a planet with, you know, animal, you know, kind of intelligent life on it and we were to visit them. I don't think naturally we would expect to see play there. Do you know what I mean? It just seems like a strange evolutionary quirk. And the truth is we're still not massively sure, are we, why why it evolves? And it clearly does give benefits, we think, in terms of experience, allows animals to sort of simulate things that may depend on later in life. And certainly the physical, the physicality of play is no doubt really good. But with dogs, of course, play is kind of like, play is, it seems to me anyway, to be on another level. And what I really enjoyed the last three chapters of the book where I talk much more about how modern day dogs in science are very much companions to science. You know, they're dogs that fit into family environments and that are cared for, catered for, and are more like volunteers than they are, you know, research, the rest of the, unfortunately, the rest of the research animals. But this idea that, you know, all of these laboratory tests, all of these you know, studies that we read earlier on in the book that you can basically see for yourself how intelligent dogs are by just walking to the park. Like all of us can just go to a park exactly like and- uh, Alexandra did and and see for real in the slow motion kind of interplays between dogs, these sort of micro ob- observations and micro manipulations that dogs are doing to essentially either make the play end if they're a bit bored or to keep the play going and you know with the other dog or dogs and I really think that's great I mean as a back in the day as when I was you know going back to the university I suppose it was very much just kind of this idea of theory of mind and you know the idea that that not all animals understand that they are one individual mind in a sea of other minds and that their one interpretation of the world may differ from, you know, their their partner or their brother or their sister or their whatever. And everyone was like, okay, we're going to find this theory of mind in chimpanzees, gorillas, let's go, let's go. This has got to be a primate thing. And, and actually, there it was all along, you know, in our parks. And many of the scientists, no doubt, were coming back from these big expensive research trips and sort of petting their pet dog. And, you know, and they never once thinking, oh, hang on. <laughs> so I really, really, really love that. And in fact, I would say that's the thing I daydream about most when I'm at the park. And, you know, and it, as you say, it's this beautiful expression of, of I was going to say manipulation, but I don't, it sounds like a bad, you know, a negative thing. But I just mean, you know, but essentially sort of extending the good times i guess so it's lovely expression is such a good is such a good word for it and i think the thing for me that most startles me about play is we sometimes i think one of our our best capacities is that we think and one of our worst capacities is that we think because 
you know, we, we, you see multiple species playing across species and you're like, they get it. They get it. I don't know how much they're agonizing over whether or not the other knows that they know that they're all playing, but they clearly enjoy it. I saw a video the other day of a dog and a horse playing, which just shows unbelievable like cognitive awareness of another being's body. Like they're aware of what the other body is capable of. They're aware of what they, there's movement to make sure that you're not hurting the other. There's an awareness that you don't have the same physiology and they're having the best time. Like, and then of course I'm there as an observer laughing and smiling at the same so like there's there's all of this social stuff going on and it's just it's good. I think play yeah, play is really just it's 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 an expression of good. That's what it seems like mm, to me. Yeah, I think you, that's it exactly that expression of good. <laughs> it's so it's like it's why we as observers can't help but smile when you see kids play or you see animals play. It really is wonderful. It is so amazing to me that at one point, I could basically invent, in my bedroom when I was a kid, I could kind of invent a world. And, like, you know, I remember at one point just, I was really, I can't remember what I was into. It's probably some, like, really bad, awful 80s music. But, honestly, I would be singing. <laughs> what are you saying about 80s music? I was music? singing on my bed, and I could see an audience there. And it was like, I, I can't believe my brain was able to do that. And I don't, it makes me really sad in some ways that, like, as adults, we kind of, you know, they, we all have that moment where you sort of go, oh, I'm going to do some make-believe play. And you just go, oh, you can't, don't really do that anymore. Our brain doesn't do it. I think, I do think you? we do. I had this, I had this, I had this. Okay, 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 okay. I know this is slightly off topic, but talking about brains and stuff. So I was walking down the stairs the other day and I was thinking about something else. And I was imagining like a lecture hall and what was going on. But I realized in that moment that while I was moving through space down the stairs doing something, my mind was visualizing something else. This is imagination. I'm just no longer kind of creating and crafting monsters and stories, or maybe I, like maybe some other people are. But maybe just as adults, we instead of kind of because it gets kind of imbued with stresses and pressures, we we don't view like isn't that some people who meditate don't they like put you, I don't know. I don't know. This is my realm. Like I'm not into neurobiology or science, but I do think that we do, we do as adults create these kind of visions, but it's when we're thinking. Yes. I oh, know. I think you're absolutely right. And I suppose when we're dreaming, we are, as you say, entering another world in our head, essentially. But it's just a shame we don't really do it. As, well, I don't do it as much for fun anymore. But then, like you say, when you're thinking through your PhD stuff, and you're thinking of a new angle or a new question, I guess some would argue, well, that's play as well. And when I'm thinking of, like, what's my next book going to be about? Again, I guess in some ways, like, we're playing with ideas, aren't we? What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. definitely not the same and maybe my ideas would be better if I continue to build blanket forts and like sat there and try to create <laughs> but there is something amazing about that capacity to just 
to play. And I and I and and I find it remarkable that things like play and and love create so much angst amongst us. So you end your book talking about love. And you say that this is the dangerous L word that no one wants to talk about because as a scientist, you can't be talking about love. But what ends up leading you to say, no, actually, because uh, you say that the question people can't help but ask you is, do our dogs love us? And you think they do. Well, I think, well, do you know, can I ask you what your feeling is on that? I just think they do. I don't question it. Like, So for me, love is not a... Love is not a kind of tangible thing. It's an intimacy and it's a relation, right? So I feel like I just know Linus, my dog, when he's around and he's safe and I'm safe, that that's love. Maybe I'm a bit like an um, um, like the idea of umwelt, right? Von Uxkel. It's got a love tone. And do I need to put a label on it? Maybe, maybe not. But there is a safety and a security and a like a kind of a comfort and an intimacy because. Like violence and things can also be intimate, but this is kind of like a safe knowing of one another. And I think that there is love in that. And I think it's got a love tone. So I just don't question it. I think he does love me and I love him. And I, and I think that that's enough. Whether he does or does not, this is my experience. And, and that's his, right? Yeah, I, I agree totally with that. I think I, get, I used to get asked that question a lot. And I always felt a bit uncomfortable as you say it's it's a word which means different things to different people doesn't feel like a a word we can apply scientifically to one another let alone to our relationship with a companion animal but i after that it felt feels to me like there are five or six different really strong methodologies to infer what is going on inside a dog's brain by way of emotional attachment and, you know, so you've got the fMRI, you know, scans, which can show dogs and humans reacting to, you know, positive associations in exactly the same way. You know, the oxytocin levels, the various brain hormones and neurochemicals and how they rise consistently in a way that matches humans. And so these different pillars, I think in the book, I call them kind of pillars of truth. You know, we've erected five, five of these pillars and it seems to me that, you know, the, the strength of that argument that dogs can, well, they don't always, but they are have the potential to experience something we might call love. It just felt like that argument was so strong. And we haven't got, I personally, I think, you know, I think actually other, we shouldn't expect, you know, why wouldn't dolphins be able to feel those kind, that kind of joy of love or the sadness of losing someone? Why would a chimpanzee not? But I think with dogs, we've because they are so much more accessible and, they can be companions in science and volunteers, etc. We've got these really strong pillars now, and I feel like the argument that they are the argument that they are un, kind of unfeeling robots, which to be fair, no, not many people argue that. But you know that that sort of philosophical argument it needs to be put in the bin, really. And so I think I'm okay. I'm okay with using that word love in a way I wasn't before because most people respond to. They know roughly what that is and what that feels like. And I would I hate the idea of somebody buying a dog and putting it in their house and going to work every day for the next 15 years and the dog just sitting on its own in the house. And I, I really like that. I don't like the idea of that too too much. I, I don't like the idea of people treating dogs badly because they don't think they're they're capable of the same kinds of emotions that humans are. So I kind of felt I felt pretty 
by the end of that research, I felt kind of like it, need, it needed to be said. And actually, I thought I thought I would get loads of pushback actually from I was going to say proper zoologists there, but you know I thought I was going to get pushback from you know. But actually, as you say, I think most people appreciate they just sort of appreciate that as a sentiment. Yeah, of course they do. We've seen it with our own eyes, you know. Yeah, no, it's useful to have that kind of like physiological stuff and those MRI kind of experiments that you mentioned there were also just a really interesting kind of example of how you can learn things without kind of putting leashes on dogs and like encaging dogs because that was a really brilliant example of positive reinforcement, training dogs how to go into the MRIs, teaching them how to be okay with the loud noises and and learning something pretty remarkable because we are in such close relation with uh, with dogs. So those were really, and yeah, the pictures of it are just incredible. It's like seeing these little dogs in, in, in MRI scans being totally okay. And it is always nice to be able to say to naysayers, yeah, no, look, there is this, there is research to show that dogs kind of bodies change when we're around in the same ways that we change around people who we would say we love. And and I think to come back to Darwin, where you said difference in kind, this just to me says, okay, well, we should just put this to bed for most animals we're talking about now, because if if we see this kind of relationship with dogs and we see it with ourselves and we see it with, why would we not, like you say, see the same thing with with dolphins or with social animals who care for their young? And why why would that be anything other than love? What is the impetus to say that us caring for our babies is love, but others caring for their babies is something else? It just seems it seems counterintuitive, really. Yeah, and the the word that most back, you know, I was always taught that this word attachment is where it's at. So we can say, as you say, social mammals, you know, they're gonna they're gonna have an attachment thing, and then with us, we use this special word. We've got a special word. It's called love, you know. And as you say, it just doesn't it just doesn't really make any sense, really. And if anything, it risks, as I said, like belittling the emotions of non-human animals and putting us on a pedestal. And, you know, I agree with the Darwin thing. I, I think if there's one if there's one research paper I would take back in time and show Darwin, though I just think I think he would love that fMRI one. He'd probably be like, whoa, is that what the brain looks like? You know, but, it, you know, I, I do think he'd be like, wow, that really does, you know, essentially prove, you know, what what my own research is 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 hinting at. So, no, I think that's really exciting. And I'd love, I, I mean, it'd be very interesting what other fMRI stuff you know, comes out. It would be fascinating, for instance, to know whether, you know, if if dogs if a dog loses their human companion, you know, how what does that look like in the brain? You know, like how much can they grieve? How much can they understand of the the, the passing or the loss of someone? Or is it just that they're you know dissociated and they're just the routines change and the person that they love who used to feed them every day is no longer there? You know, it would be fascinating to know more about that it'd be interesting to see wouldn't it and i think there's still a really good kind of opportunity for for physical and social sciences to work together here because i think observing dogs who whose people have died or have left there's probably enough evidence just from observing them to see that their behaviors change when the people they rely on are gone they change and and how how do we quantify our own sense of grief and loss like we we seem to kind of sometimes hold perhaps different standards for what we ask with regards to other animals to prove that they're feeling what they're feeling, whereas we just trust. And I know that there have been experiments done, of course, on humans, and this, there have these been these kinds of questions, but 
yeah, I just, I think it's pretty remarkable. And it's, you mentioned at the end of your book, Biff, who's, who's, I don't want to give everything away, but you mentioned, you mentioned Biff and it was really, who was, who was your dog. And it makes me think like they are our friends and they are the ones we really love and care for. And, you know, Linus is part of my family. And if he's stressed out when I leave home, that's something I should take seriously. It's I think what you were trying to say there just now. It's not, it's not just a, oh, he's a dog. We need to go beyond that kind of explanation when our dogs get in the way of our kind of supposed clean lives. Oh, he's just a dog. But that hopefully that spreads. I mean, if we're saying that, we then we of course say it about cats. If we say it about cats, you know, rabbits, we can, you know what I mean. So I like the idea of dogs and cats actually being a kind of a welcome mat, if you like, for how we appreciate mammals and other animals in general. Yeah, definitely. How old's Linus? Oh gosh, he's almost four. So we we got him from a, a shelter, and he he's he's very definitely like one of the dogs. You know, you spoke of kind of showing kind of signs of their puppyhood. I think for the first six months, he didn't wag his tail. He didn't bark. We got him at 11 months and he'd already been in the shelter for three months. And shelters are pretty stressful environments. And we found out that he'd been passed between five families before he got to us. So just he had no kind of sense of trust with people. Uh, and now he's he's got some challenges, but he's 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 a good dog. He's a good He's a good person in our lives. I absolutely love him. <laughs> Whether he loves me or not, it's irrelevant. But I love that. You just said, I know you, you meant to say it, didn't you? But you said he's a good person in, in our lives. And I just think, exact, I feel exactly the same about, you know, the dogs in our life. I just, I agree totally. They are, they are people, they're, you know, family members. You know, I think the, only, the, the saddest thing in the world, but this is what we get for our, you know, our positive, strong relationship. But it's just that we age so much more slowly than them. And, you know, I just, if we could only do something about that, you know. Because <laughs> no, 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 don't go down that route. <laughs> don't do it. But, you know, it's, you know, I just think it's a, it's a sort of a beautiful horror, I guess, really, that, you know, we have to go through that. And I've, I, I, our current dog, Oz, he's two, and I've just got such a, I don't know if you ever do this, but you start counting forwards a bit and going, well, if he's two now, it's going to be this, and you sort of, and it, yeah, it does make me sort of really sad, but you know, we've got to just in, enjoy each other, haven't we, on a day-to-day level? But like you say, it's also a big responsibility. So because of the time differences, right? Like Linus will be in our lives for let's say like nine to fifteen years, and it's 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 sad to think in that way. But we will be in his for the rest of his life. So that that comes with a big responsibility. What it's not just that he's the background of our lives and he's the wallpaper in our apartment. No, we are his life. So we we have a responsibility to not just feed him and keep him, like to make sure that that's an enriched life and an important life for him. And I think that that's sometimes what gets lost in, you know, conversations or posters about getting dogs. I think people have this idea that, oh, I'll get a dog. It'll be like an Instagram post. I'll walk on the beach. It's there's going to be no, no, there's going to be bills. There's going to be times. There's going to be dinners you can't go to. There's going to be things that go wrong. There's going to be fights. There's going to be a whole, and there's going to be joys and laughter and amazing things in between. But it's your, you are their whole lives. Like it's your responsibility to make sure it's a good life. Well, it's, it's weird. I mean, my unpopular opinion, and I, again, I don't really express this because I know it's not, it's not going to gain me any friends, but ladies, you know, I kind of wish we could 
you know, when we dr- learn to drive, I don't know how it is in the UK anyway, we, we have to do a theory test as well as the actual, you know, the practical driving test. I just sort of feel like oh, we just need something just before you get into that zone of like, we oh, let's get a dog, we're going to have a dog, we're going to have a dog. If, you know, just a moment to sort of go, just be reminded formally, as you say, that, you know, for this is a long period of time and it doesn't always work out and there's things out of your control. And and as you say, you've got this massive responsibility. I find it, I think about this all the time, but I just find it, if you overthink it, it's kind of crazy. But Linus, I assume, is the same as, as ours. Like Linus knows where you are right now, yeah? So I'm, I'm actually in Canada and he's in Austria. So, oh. um, <laughs> so maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. When you're together, yes, yes that's what and I meant. If, okay. And if he does, I'll be like, really wonder dog so um (laughs) but you know it is it is amazing that you know when you're in the house with linus when i'm in the house with us else he's got a running commentary in his head of whereabouts i am and what i'm doing and what that routine is and if i'm going to a certain cupboard you know where there might be snacks it'll get up if i open a banana in a room two doors away it'll be like oh is that the sound of a banana right i'm gonna go into (laughs) but you know like it's we you know really as you said we are one of the centers of their world and if you're not taking that but if you're not accepting of that fact that you are literally the center of someone's world then you know that's a that's a that's a bit of a you know it's a bit of a worry i suppose i mean what a privilege what an absolute privilege to be that important to someone and i agree i think that there should be more you know, tests done before people can just buy a dog. And I think you shouldn't be able to buy a dog. I think increasingly uh, you touched on breeding in your your book as well. And I think breeding has led to a lot of really devastating physiologies for dogs. These creatures who we absolutely love are born with dispositions that hurt them because we want a dog that looks a particular way. And now that they exist in the world and you've done it, you, you stick to them no matter what, and you, you help them because you are, like you say, the center of their world. Pretty remarkable. And something that's just really stuck out for me now with talking is we started out kind of talking about zoology, and we spoke a bit about how some university students would go far away to kind of look at, quote-unquote, exotic animals who deserve to be looked at and deserve to be understood, but that there is also wonder to be had with the animals right around you, the pigeons in your backyard, sparrow in your roof the the dog in your your on your couch you know the cats in your windowsill these are incredible creatures that have thousands of years of histories so thank you for helping us wonder about the animals we see every day it's really great no it's a total pleasure it's really nice uh you know geeking out really i don't know if that's a that's a, is that, <laughs> you know but it's really nice often like you do you, you know i don't i haven't done many podcasts but i like often that you know that it's it's you know, they're massively generalist, you know, and the topics are very much like, oh, we've got a scientist on, so let's keep it about, like, you know, the science of animals or whatever. But I've actually got loads from speaking to, from, you know, speaking to you and your interest in the, the sort of academic side of things has been really nice for me. So thank you ever so much. You're welcome, but we're not quite done yet. I feel like we're gearing up to say goodbye, but we first need to read, we first need to read the, the quote. Do you have a quote ready? Mm, I do have a quote. Hang on. My quote is by T.H. Huxley, which who is, he was called Darwin's Bulldog, I'm sure you know. And he was kind of, uh, you know, one of those people that took on Darwin's ideas and was really challenging against, you know, famously against the Christian church. But that's not why I've chosen it. I just think he was someone who really understood zoology and 
I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. So it's, it links a lot to what we've talked about with Wanda. The known is finite, the unknown infinite. Intellectually, we stand on an islet in the midst of an illimitable ocean of inexplicability. Our business in every generation is to reclaim a little more land. And that was in 1887. And the reason I love it is because I, this is such a sad thing to admit, I was basically got to about my mid-twenties before I realised there were still scientific mysteries unsolved. I don't know what I'd missed in my academic, you know, maturation. But I honestly was just like, okay, here's the deal. You want to learn about animals? Great. These guys are going to tell you about animals. The lecture theatre, you sit and listen to some guy, often a guy, who's going to tell you all you need to know about animals. And that's it. There's nothing else to discover, nothing else to explore. And it was only when I started actually working in schools regularly in about my mid-20s that I was like, oh, my gosh, there's, you know, kids would ask questions and you would, you know, research these questions and you'd be like, oh, we don't really know that, do we? And it was it's so embarrassing to admit, but I, there was something wrong with the way I was taking in information, I think, in my early 20s. No, I don't think it says anything about you as much as something about that that idea of authority and someone standing up and saying, this is the way the world is and not leaving that pause and gap and saying, because that's a key thing with science as well, is to admit that we don't quite know and what we do know, we might know wrong, wrongly. So I think that's a beautiful thing to, to admit and to realize that there is so much. And kids ask the best questions. They really do ask the best questions that cut to the heart of things. You know, it's great. Just then you mentioned about how just the animals in our backyards, how inspiring and how they can be objects of wonder. And it just reminded me that about 10 years ago, I was I did I was do, doing a book about animal reproduction at the time. And I was looking at the slugs in my garden in our backyard on a wet night. And I was thinking, oh, well, these two slugs were just beginning to get into the, the throes of slug lovemaking, I guess you could say. And cue some Barry White. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and got really close with my camera, as you do. And and then and then the lens, you know, the camera sort of just took focus on um, a little white mite that was running around on the slug. And I was like, oh wow, this there's a little mite on this slug. And then I was like, oh god. And the closer I looked, like the more I was like, there's actually like ten or so little of these these little slug mites running around. So I thought that's kind of interesting. And I, you know, did a bit of looking around on the internet and I was like okay well I didn't realize this but most slugs in the UK at least but actually all over the world have you know their parasites well we don't know if they're parasites or not but they are they have living upon them and within their little gill hole thing loads of these little mites a couple of different species and I was like well that's quite cool and I was thinking wow all of these snails and slugs I've looked at in my life I've never once noticed that but yet here they are and they're really common now the reason I'm mentioning it is because I was like oh I know instead of writing about slug sex I'll write about slug mite sex and I thought that would be a really funny idea and turns out you know one paper's been written on slug mite sex in history or it certainly was then and it was a soldier who was fighting in World War II who was had a secret interest in entomology and in his sick bed he needed something to study and so he asked the nurse to go and get a slug and then he found these slug mites he did some studies on slug mites from his sick bed and I was like that is incredible that this animal that's literally, you know, two metres out of the back door, we still don't really know about its sex life. And mites have really weird, freaky sort of interests. They're really amazing sort of diversity of sexual behaviours. And I just thought that says it all. You know, we are really, really 
it's so easy to appreciate. It's so easy to think there's so little to understand. There's, I'll rephrase that. It's so easy for us to think everything's been discovered, but actually you realise that it's just a matter of perspective and it's a matter of questions. So that quote for me really resonates because it's kind of like, wow, we really are, you know, tossing stones into the ocean and just, you know, that's our, every generation, I suppose, is is, is get, getting that wonderful opportunity to discover more. And that actually links back to the book, actually, because that's kind of what we're seeing is, you know, every generation throughout that 150 years, you know, our knowledge of what a dog is, is essentially being reframed and, you know, changed. So, yeah, no, I love, it's a really nice quote. I, yeah, I, I completely forgot it existed until you said you need to bring a quote. And I was like, OK, I'll find a quote. And I was like, oh, I love that one. So thank you. <laughs> it's a beautiful quote. And thank you so much for for sharing about the slugs. And I like that you started that saying, oh, I did this book about animal reproduction, but no, no, it's called Sex on Earth. You didn't shy, you didn't shy away from, and then also another one on death on Earth, which is, I mean, you've really done some fascinating stuff. Well, and guess, I feel which, like, I, guess which one did not sell very well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I was going to ask if you're going to, the next one's going to be like taxes on Earth or something. <laughs> um, but what, what are you working on next? I know that you've got something in the pipeline. What's, uh, what's next for you? There's a book about life cycles, I'm hoping, which will be that's for, for kids, and then a book about a book about museums, and which is again for kids, and then a book about eggs, which is for adults. And it's uh, it's not birds' eggs, it's like it's the most extreme concept ever. It's just like eggs. <laughs> so it's about like, you know, this this early life stage and everything that's alive, every animal that's alive goes through this stage, and it's about the kind of secret prehistory of life I guess you could call it so it's again it's just like these other projects it's just absolutely fascinating to discover all these new things and be re-engaged with this wonderful science all over again really how do you how do you like live where do you get money from to just do all of these cool <laughs> things <laughs> like I want, no, your, I, want, I want your life uh, where I get to just read about <laughs> like, amazing things it just sounds amazing, like eggs. Oh, it's incredible. You don't have to tell me how you live. I feel like that was a really personal question. Like, no. tell me about your life and what you... <laughs> I mean, like, I will say this. People just seem to... I, this figure of £70,000 comes up a lot. I don't know where. It's, it must be a UK thing, but people will sometimes go like, Oh um yeah, so you must be you must be absolutely loaded. Why are you driving a car that's like, you know, about <laughs> to break down? Like, you must be loaded. And it's like... Do you not understand, like, that's nobody in this business, well, I, unless you're, you know, I, I don't know, like a really well-established author, nobody's making more than a few thousand for these yeah. books. You know, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not an earner, if no. that makes sense. I mean, you kind of hope that one or two might be, you know, but the bottom line is kind of a ruthless industry. But having said that, the the beauty of it is it's a kind of I think they the first couple of books I was like oh here we go you know this is really exciting they're going to fly off the shelves and actually you realise that it's actually kind of not about that it's about expressing your interests and I think like it's taken me what this is book number what twelve so it's taken me a long time but you know I definitely think like that's actually what the the, the it, this won't work for me unless I'm actually in it for just discovering new stuff really and and getting to talk about it. Well, we are all the better for it. It was a really great book to read. I recommend it to everyone who's listening uh, and I look forward to reading more about sex and death on earth. I think death sounds really as exciting. So thank you so much, Jules, for, for your time today. It's been just 
a whole lot of fun and I've learned a lot from you and hopefully I'll have you on the show again. Uh, so thank you so much. Anytime, Claudia. Honestly, I've learned loads from you as well. So thank you very much. Thank you to Jules Howard for being an incredible guest, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. Thank you also to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple, for sponsoring this episode. This episode was edited by Christian Mens and produced by myself. This is The Animal Tone with me, Claudia Hüttenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!